Kia ora everybody, welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, Tuesday the 21st of February, Kornathan Rararariaho. Coming up, a body is found in a river less than a mile from where UK mother of two Nicola Bully vanished three weeks ago. Henry Riley has the latest from London. Our government announces a $300 million support fund in the aftermath of Cyclone Gabrielle. Nationals Deputy and Finance Spokesperson Nicola Willis joins us for her take. And we sent Matthew Tunison to find out what will become of Tairafiti's forestry workers. A lot of people can't get to their jobs. My boss says we've got three logging crews and be lucky if one of them can get to work. So what are you going to do? I don't know. Welcome to First Up, wherever you are listening. I'm Nathan Rarere here and we begin this morning's programme in London. So you might have heard this, a body has been found in the search for missing woman uh, Nicola Bully. Henry Riley is our man in the UK. It's always a pleasure to get to say morena to Henry. So tell me sir, what, what's the latest in the discovery of this body? Is, is, is that Nicola Bully? Nathan, thanks very much for having me on. Um, We haven't had it confirmed yet. We sense it may take a few days to have it confirmed that it is Nicola Bully's body. Of course, all the indications would suggest that finding a body within such a close proximity to where Nicola went missing. I mean, it's coming up to a month, actually, three weeks since she went missing. And so we won't know formally for a few days because the identification process is expected to take three days to confirm. That's because due to the amount of time it appears the body has been in the water, it's it's slightly more tricky for forensics to confirm whether that is Nicola's body. But the reaction from the family would suggest they're bracing for the worst. Paul Ansel, who is the partner of Nicola, said he had no words right now, just agony. He shared a statement a little earlier on this morning. Lancashire Police confirmed yesterday afternoon, it was around three o'clock, that they'd recovered a body. And it's one of those things that everyone's been talking about today, really, where you were when you found out the news that there was a body. Everyone is of course braced for the worst outcome now with that being confirmed it would be expected as Nicola and it does put to rest at least for the family all the various speculation that was going on not just on TikTok but also with sort of armchair detectives going out on Sky and various other outlets who are purporting to know exactly what happened and at least the the only thing is there will be some closure and an end to some of the speculation that's been going on surrounding the case. Yeah, the old classic, oh, I know someone who's got a mate that works in search, search and rescue, that, that kind of yeah. one that comes from there. You know, exactly. an, an, another story which has gripped uh, the nation and I think a, a lot of people on planet Earth, if you're over the age of 20, there's no way you wouldn't have heard about the case of Madeleine McCann over the years. But a Polish woman suspects that she is Madeleine McCann. Tell me about this. Yes, Julia Wendell. She's from Poland. She is 21 years old and clearly a very distressed woman. She's launched an Instagram page with the heading "Help Me." I need to be. Uh, I need to talk with Kate and Jerry McCann. And the actual name of the account is "I Am Madeline McCann." She believes that she is Madeline McCann. Of course, at this stage, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that she is. But she's amassed a following of almost 500,000 people on her account who are sort of gripped and wondering if it is her. There's been sort of mixed messages as well. There was purported to be a source close to the family close to the McCann family, who said the family are taking no chances. They're willing to look at all leads. It's important they look at all factors. The girl does look similar. There's no disputing that. If what she says is true, there's every chance it could be her. Now, that has been... The McCanns themselves have, have 
essentially refused to comment and are almost seeming to distance themselves from these claims. Um, it appears that this story is going to rumble on and on. It hasn't been picked up. I think many people are slightly cautious about siding with various claims at the moment. If Madeline was alive today, she'd be 19. Julia is 21, although, of course, that may not necessarily be correct. At this point, there is still a lot of confusion around the case. Of course, the, the, the working theory up until this point was that Madeline was killed by a sex predator. Uh, that hasn't been confirmed, of course. He was charged with three counts, this particular individual, uh, with regards to something else. He's never been proven to have any involvement in Madeline McCann's case. He was arrested at one point, but aside from that, there is no evidence at all. But it is still one of those cases, Nathan. As you say, the British people, and indeed people around the world, as you referenced, are extremely interested in what happened to Madeline McCann. This provides yet another avenue, potentially correct, potentially conspiracy. We don't know at this stage, but what is clear is that it is getting a real following on social media. And if there is a DNA test, we'll know sooner rather than later exactly what the situation is. And if it keeps getting following, it'll keep getting published. Uh, there's, there's that as well. Now, uh, the, the Scottish mm. First Minister, so Nicola Sturgeon uh, stood down last week, and I understand Kate Forbes has announced a, 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 a what she's going to have a bid for First Minister. Tell us about Kate Forbes. Yeah, she's probably the favourite, Nathan. She's the finance secretary currently in Scotland. She's announcing that she's going to run for SNP leader. You recall on the programme last week, uh, clearly uh, an excellent fortune teller. I told you I thought she wouldn't run, so shows how much I know, <laughs> because she was on maternity leave. Um, she uh, has essentially, yeah, was on maternity leave. She's cut short that leave to take part in the contest. Um, and many people who we thought would run have also ruled themselves out. Angus Robertson, who I spoke with you about last week, widely mm. expected to have run. He's ruled himself out. He was the sort of angry looking fellow that we spoke about last week. Yeah. And uh, challenging Kate Forbes will be Hamza Youssef. He's the health secretary in Scotland. A very popular figure, it has to be said, seen as almost a, a sort of safe pair of hands. And then former minister Ash Regan, who is slightly um, the fringe candidate, I think it's fair to say at this point. The thing that may trip up Kate Forbes, who you said, you know, is now running, is likely to be the favourite, uh, is she has some pretty uh, strong views on gay marriage and abortion that perhaps don't align with the Scottish National Party and perhaps align more with the Church of Scotland. And so that'll be interesting as to if and when that comes out in the press. Yeah, Henry, thank you so much for your time, sir. Uh, with all the news from the UK, that is Henry Riley. We'll call it 11 past five right now. Uh, if you need to be out the door soon, Radio Dags, let's go. This is first up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radere. Time now to catch up with Chris Gilbert in Japan. This week, he's got a cracker of a story of a, the, the bizarre undoing of a criminal uh, in the middle of a robbery spree. But first, we talk about Japan working closely with the US and South Korea over North Korea's launching of missiles. We may remember that at the end of last year, North Korea flew a missile over Japan. I fired a whole bunch of missiles into the ocean back then as well. Mm. We seem to be entering another one of these cycles of mutually provocative tit-for-tat. I fire, you do a war drill, I condemn you, then we do military exercises. Like, you know, I play, you play, I go, you go kind of battleship sort of scenario here where each side is blaming the other side of being provocative. And to be honest, this didn't start uh, today. It started, well, I guess you could say it started on Saturday when North Korea fired a missile into uh, Japan's exclusive economic zone. But you could go before that, weeks ago, 
Pyongyang was warning, like, hey, we're going to start firing missiles again if you continue doing your war games in the area. And, you know, the U.S. and South Korea totally ignored that and was like, actually, we're going to expand our war games this year. They're going to be bigger and better and more beautiful than ever. And uh, Pyongyang was like, okay, then fire some missiles. So it's not wholly unexpected. What we don't know about this cycle yet is what shape it's going to take compared to last year, if it's, if it's going to look any different, if there's going to be any kind of different response from the UN, which is uh, the Security Council is dysfunctional over this issue at the moment, since Russia and China keep using their veto power, and if there's going to be any escalation of sorts from China as well, if, if they get involved in this, or if the United States looks to put their foot down over North Korea's nuclear missile program in any way that doesn't involve uh, the UN Security Council, all that is yet to be seen, but it does look like we're entering one of these cycles again. Oh no, that's horrible. I mean, at the end of the day, there are things that explode and, and can hurt people. So let's, let's hope that doesn't go any further than just posturing. I need to Absolutely. read this whole headline out because this is amazing. Man in Osaka attempts to set some kind of robbery record, gets arrested after paying bill mid-crime spree. <laughs> Expand upon that, please. Yep. So the humble kombini, uh, the convenience store, they're everywhere in Japan. You know, they're kind of like Starbucks in America. You can stand on one corner and see four other convenience stores. So it's not very difficult to go to four of them in 20 minutes. It might be a little bit more difficult to rob four of them in 20 minutes, uh, which is what this 20-year-old man in Osaka attempted at 3 a.m. in the morning last month. He allegedly went into the first convenience store with a 20-centimeter kitchen knife, because remember, Japan, no guns, only knives, Mm. and demanded they hand over all your money, and he got about 60,000 yen, which sounds impressive, but it's about $715 in cash, but I guess it's still pretty good for a robbery of a convenience store. And then he went on to rob three more. We don't know how successful he was. We do know that nobody was hurt in any of these, thank goodness, but... The startling thing is there was a fifth convenience store, and this was between robberies number three and four. So he's robbed one, robbed two, robbed three. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go pay my phone bill. So he goes into the fourth, con- <laughs> he goes into the fourth convenience store uh, instead of threatening them and saying, give me all your cigarettes and candy and, and cash. He requests the person working there to pay his phone bill, which – you know, you can do a convenience stores here and uh, uses the cash from earlier robberies to pay for it. He then went on to rob another convenience store after this. You know, very responsible. You know, he was like, well, well I'm at it. Might as well, you know, do some chores. But it was his downfall because the police used surveillance camera footage to track his movements between the stores and then very simply just looked at the transaction record of his phone bill payment to identify his name, phone number, and address, and promptly went and arrested him for robbing several convenience stores. I do think that context should be considered in a situation like this. The guy was effectively a Robert, Robin Hooding himself to do the right thing and pay his phone bill. The argument could be made, well, if you can't afford the phone bill, maybe you shouldn't have a phone. Yeah. But excuse me, have you tried living in 2023 without a phone? You yeah, can't you leave the phone right, leave the house right now without your phone. You can't do it. You need a phone. You need to do bloody everything. Like, so I, I'm kind of. I'm going to say this on national radio, on the robber's side, to kind of take from the rich to sustain his obligations to pay the other rich. But I do feel like he did it quite inefficiently. The whole process, he should have just gone to the first convenience store and said, instead of, hey, can I have all your money? He should have just pointed the knife at the person and said, hey, I'm not going to bother robbing you. Just take money from the till and pay my phone bill for me, please. Cheers.
Chris Gilbert reporting in from Tokyo. I'm not on the side of the robber. Thank you. Uh, look, we've seen the physical devastation from Cyclone Gabrielle in Hawke's Bay and Gisborne, and the task of cleaning up continues. Uh, there's also that toll on mental health. Cheryl Moore's home lies buried in a metre of silt. She's also a Hastings business owner and told me it's going to be a long recovery. The day-to-day trauma that we keep seeing is a community. My community have already felt a lot of pressure under the agriculture and horticulture and people's mental health. My business is Urban Retreat in Hastings and these people that have been majorly affected are my client base. There's some scary stories out there bigger than mine and three to five minutes to get your family and your family pet in the car with the clothes on your back if you were lucky enough to get out. What what does Urban Retreat do? Uh, we do pampering. We do hair and we do facials and, yeah, we do all the nice stuff that no one is feeling like they've got any brain space for at the moment. When, when you have a look around, tell me, in, in your suburb there, in, in Pukawhai, so just describe what it normally looks like and what, what does it appear like to you now? So it's normally very tidy and pretty. We have agriculture growing and we have pretty apple trees blossoming and about to be picked and now it just looks like a tornado and a tsunami have gone through our area. And look, I mean it's that thing, I mean this isn't just going to go away in two days, this is quite a long road out and I know that there was quite a bit of adrenaline after the start but it's the bit where people get tired there Cheryl isn't it, so you're really, you're really going to have to rely on each other. Very much so, my partner is still relying on his adrenaline and he just keeps on going, he is just a Trojan, really, and there is a lot of Trojan horses in our area and they just need a whole lot of support just to top them up every day. Our community is suffering and we are salvaging nothing out of our properties, pretty much. Are you back in your own home? No, definitely not. Our house is underwater and has only just come out of underwater the last couple of days. We have a metre of silt sitting around our property and our area, so we won't be going back any time soon. So, yeah, so if you're not at home, where are you staying at the moment? We are on friends' couches and family, yeah, family support. We are living in a room and the cat has a window view. So, so Cheryl, if, if you've got a message out there for the rest of New Zealand before the news cycle moves on from them, what, what, what would you like them to know? We need everybody's support. We are struggling. We are going to be in trouble for a long time. That's Cheryl Moore. It's 20 past five here. I'm Nathan Rarity at First Up on RNZ National. So coming up, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis gives us her take on the government's $300 million support package for roading and businesses in flood-impacted areas. And also Matthew Tunison is in Tolaga Bay to find out uh, what will become of Tairawhiti's now out-of-work forestry workers. We'll go to mid-Canterbury now, and we are joined by Jonathan Lesk from the Local Democracy Reporting Programme to uh, bring us news from there. Kia ora, Jonathan. How are you? 
Oh, very well, thank you, Nathan. Yeah, thanks. Very good. Hey, tell me about this. So Ashburton there, the Civic Library, uh, the Civic Centre and the Library is being pushed back. What, why has this happened again? Uh, it's just the continuation of those supply chain issues and delays and COVID affecting staff and all those sort of things. So it's been pushed back to the, uh, it's going to open in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, it was originally supposed to have been open by now. It was supposed to open at the end of last year. Um, and then it got pushed back to being completed by mid-2023. And now they're talking about it opening in the fourth quarter. Um, but I suppose the big question everyone's asking is, is it going to blow the budget? Um, and they keep telling us that that budget's under very significant pressure. Uh, but I suppose the interesting thing there is the $56.75 million has that $20 million of shovel-ready money tucked away in its kitty. So technically that budget's actually $76 million. Well, that's a, that's a, going to be a nice library, I'll tell you that. It's going to be lovely carpet in it. I mean, do, you know, do you, your personal faith that it's going to be open in this final quarter, do you, do you, what do you reckon? What's your hunch? Out my window, I've been watching them furiously putting up windows and all sorts of things in the last couple of weeks, so that it will be finished this year. Nice. Because uh, it's the li- the library is actually tripling, I think it's tripling the floor space of the old dark, dark library. And it's the new uh, council offices and meeting rooms and all that sort of thing as well. So it's going to be a big building that will future-proof it for the district. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Now, uh, Ashburton there, the council looking at possibly a 5.5% rates rise, or is that one locked in? That is the number they are working towards. But you may know that Ashburton is constantly complaining about being the pothole capital of the country. That might not be the case after recent events. Uh, for our unfortunate friends in the further north. Yeah. Uh, but in response to those community demands, uh, the council's looking at adding an, um, an extra million dollars of roading in the next financial year, and that would be unsubsidised, so it wouldn't have the um, Wakakotahi subsidy, so it would come straight out of the ratepayers' pockets to fix those roads. So that's going to go through the, the final budget, work, hopefully the final budget workshop later this week to right. narrow that figure. Yeah, and and finally one to get to, the restoration's been approved of an historical rail bridge. That story's out today. What are we talking about here? That's the, the iconic 106-year-old uh, bridge that goes across the annoying uh, railway line straight through the middle of Ashburton. Uh, it needs a little bit of work, uh, and so the council's committed to uh, fix that up uh, so to do all the maintenance and stuff that it needs and to fund it, but when and where those funds are coming from is still the, the big question. There was an estimate in 2018 that was about $250,000 worth of work, but it's probably gone up a bit now. Uh, so they're going to wait and see where and how that's going to be funded. Um, and apparently there's absolutely no risk to waiting for that work to be done. It still functions as a safe crossing over the railway. Yeah, it's still a bridge that can bridge. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time, sir. Uh, our local democracy reporting programme reporter from Mid-Canterbury, Jonathan Leesk. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the 21st of February as we tear through the year. We've only got two months out of the way so far. So this is a day that you shared your birthday with. Rue McLennan, born Eddie Rue McLennan. Who? 
Blanche from the Golden Girls. Or Blanche, remember her? Uh, she was born in 1934 on this day, and one of the great All Blacks, Kel Tremaine, uh, was born on this day in 1938. Let's look at people that are blowing out candles. Do we still blow out candles in this COVID age? I'm not sure. Maybe we do. Jennifer Love Hewitt is 44 years old today. Greg Turner, golfer extraordinaire, hits 60 today. Uh, Kelsey Grammer. Now, you either think of him as Frasier Crane or, for some reason, I always think of him as Sideshow Bob, the wonderfully creepy assistant there uh, from The Simpsons. Kelsey Grammer turns 68 years old today. Actor Alan Rickman, uh, born on this day 70 years ago. Of course, he's not uh, with us anymore. Of course, he died in 2016. Uh, And uh, still with us is Tyne Daly, who was um, Lacey from Cagney and Lacey. I loved Cagney and Lacey. I don't know why, it was just it was a great show there when I was a teenager. So there you go. Uh, Tyne Daly turned 77 years old today. On this day in 1879, uh, the Kaitangata mining disaster, when an explosion rocked a coal mine there in Kaitangata in South Otago, that happened in 1879. And on this day in 1947, Edwin Land went, what do you think of this? And they went, what is that? He showed them his new camera that actually had film that would develop very, very quickly. It was called the Land Camera Model 95. You know it as a Polaroid camera. Uh, they made 50, they made 60 of them. He grabbed one and a couple of mates got, got one. They put 57 in the Jordan Marsh de- department store on uh, the Christmas holiday and they figured, oh, we'll have a couple of years to make some more. Nope, they all sold out in one day and uh, that was the start of it all, the Polaroid camera of the state in 1947. <laughs> Charles Beckford is with us now from the business team, steering the business ship. How are you? Kira, I'm well, thank you. You know, the Polaroid camera must be one of the best icebreakers in a foreign country. You know, if you've if you had one, I mean, yeah, you, know, you can find them still, I suppose. I think they're making modern versions of them, but. I just remember being in an Asian country back in the late 70s, uh, European visitors, a rarity. Yes. Out with the Polaroid and just the wonderment on people's faces as the picture appeared. And I it thought, is quite ta-da, wasn't it? Yeah, it ta-da. was. And, and people, all of a sudden, you had instant friends. And I thought, no, that was a pretty cool invention. Tell you what, Charles, I remember it used to, this is getting my old man voice, I remember, <laughs> I remember you'd drop it off at Langwoods and you could get it back in three days, you film. Goodness me. But oh, anyway, those <laughs> days, yeah. I, you know, I used to do my own. It was wonderful, wasn't in it? The in the kitchen. In the kitchen. Well, not like that. <laughs> That's right. So tell me this. Waldorf and Statler. <laughs> Purge at Kiwi Wealth oh, and Pan Pack yeah. to rebuild at Hawke's Bay. What are these? Well, Pan Pack is, of course, is the big uh, forest product uh, mill in uh, Napier. Um, if you've seen the film, uh, it's just been completely and utterly trashed. But it, it provides somewhere in the region of about, uh, it estimates 6 to 7% of the, the, the regional economy in Hawke's Bay. So you've got to say, and it's got somewhere in the region of 400 workers. So uh, they've said straight up, um, and it's very easy at times of disaster for big companies to go, well, hmm, it was good, but look, we'll just find somewhere a bit safer and we'll move on. Uh, Full-on commitment from them. Uh, we're going to rebuild. We're back. You know, we're not going anywhere. We've been here for 40, 50 years. Uh, and there's a real statement of faith 
uh, and confidence boost. You know, notwithstanding everything that's still got to be done uh, and possibly more tragedies that uh, will come across, but you have to say, in terms of economy, um, when a big employer like that stands up and says, we ain't going nowhere, well, you know, it's reason to be confident, it's reason to be cheerful. Hmm. Uh and the the per, the purchase yes, Fisher funds the Fisher funds uh sorry no project Kiwi wealth Kiwi remember wealth, Kiwi wealth was uh the investment arm of the old Kiwi bank and it was sort of like the odd uh, child or the, the odd one out in the Kiwi bank family um uh, it was well regarded it was completely new zealand owned there was a big argument when it was put up on the block Fisher funds which uh has Local ownership, but uh, there's also been some foreign involvement there. When they took it over last year, they said, "Oh yes, don't you worry. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to be there. We're going to keep it operating in Wellington. Um, you, there might be a little bit of reorganisation, but look, you know, um, in other words, they get they gave all the uh, good talk about how uh, they were going to maintain this company and everybody was going to be happy ever after. Well, the knife started to fall. The top four executives in Kiwi Wealth uh, have just um, they're moving on to new pastures, shall we say? And it's just another example. I won't say weasel words, but. Uh, you don't always have to believe, uh, I think, some of the things. In contrast to Pampac saying, we're back. Mm. Fisher Fund saying last year, you Kiwi Wealth people, don't you worry. Um, there'll be real concern amongst some of the other people at Kiwi Wealth that uh, they too may be restructured and reorganized. And that, I find, is a bit of a shame. All in the name of efficiencies, of course, but that's uh, the way it goes in the corporate world. It's, it's a bit like in the sports world when the manager gets the full backing of the board. <laughs> right. And they're gone within three to four days, usually, isn't it? That's it, normally what they have. Undoubtedly, it? and <laughs> there's always a corporate version of that. Yes, there it is. Giles, thank you very much. Cheers, he's, mate. A, he's the man to be across it. You can hear more from the business team this morning on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Let's see uh, what the money markets are doing now with the New Zealand dollar. Uh, you can get 62.57 US cents, 90.44 Australian cents, 58.54 Euro cents, 51.95 British pence, 4.28 yuan and 83.79 Japanese yen. Uh, we head towards 6 o'clock. Of course, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to forget uh, the images of the Tongan workers who were rescued from a rooftop in Hawke's Bay after posting a live stream on Facebook uh, during the flooding. These men came to New Zealand under the recognised seasonal employer scheme. But a Tongan community leader says that the actual number of overseas workers needing financial help is unknown. And this is because many of them are overstayers that come here to work and then stay longer than the visa and they're too scared uh, that they're going to be kicked out of the country if they come forward. Pakilau Manese Lua is the deputy chair of the Aotearoa Tongan Response Group and he's calling on the government to announce an amnesty for them. Our producer Marvasha Kram spoke to him. We know that there are overstayers there, many of them who are working there in, um, in underground in the industries there. Maybe the immigration department could relax some of their policies to allow them to work and maybe that could be a way for them to get a pathway to residency. We've been calling for that for years now. It's almost three years now. Uh, ever since the lockdowns and there's been no movement at all and this is the time 
where New Zealand can put its money where its mouth is and invest back in the Pacific this way because it's been one-way traffic. All of the benefits, well, most of the benefits of the, the labour of these young men have come to New Zealand, created industries for the orchards, given billions of dollars of export earnings for New Zealand, and probably very little in comparison back to the islands. So what better way than to help your cousins in the Pacific by providing pathways to residency for our overstairs and even for some of these RSC families who are here. You know, maybe it's time. How many overstairs do you believe are in the region? Hard to pinpoint, but we know that there are 14,000 overstays altogether in Aotearoa, New Zealand at this moment. And we know that there are about 500 RSE workers in that region. So if you extrapolate that out, you know, you're probably looking at a few hundred uh, overstayers there easily. And these overstayers are currently working on orchards? And they'll be working. In, yeah, they'll be working in frontline roles and everything. They'll be cleaning. They'll be doing all the work that Kiwis don't want to do. You know, so they're actually contributing because they have to. They can't qualify for benefits, so they're not taking from us. But they do pay tax every time they pay, uh, they pay for petrol or buy a packet of cigarettes. Every dollar that they spend, fifteen percent of that goes into GST. So they are actually contributing more than some people who have their uh, permanent residence or citizenship and are um, perhaps not working. But at this point in time, of course, these people will not have any work because of the destruction. Are you worried about their Absol- safety? Absolutely. And they are the most vulnerable because without work, how are they going to survive? And do you know about their safety at all? Are they safe? Are they? Well, that's the scary thing because they're overstayers. Nobody can track them. You can't track and trace overstayers. We've been saying this since the pandemic. You can't track and trace overstayers during a lockdown pandemic. You know, they go from home to home. They're living you know, hand to mouth. These guys are hustlers. They're survivors. They will do everything to try and feed their children. Some of them have children who were born here, yet they're treated like they're criminals. They didn't kill anybody. In fact, they're, they're providing money to our tax base. That's the have irony. You, have you spoken to any overstairs, any, anything about them, anything about their welfare? Do you, do you know if they're safe in, in, in the flood-struck regions? Again, we, we can't even contact anyone down there. So, but you do know that there, there are overstairs there and you're trying oh, to get yeah. in touch with them? Absolutely, we know. None of them have, I mean, just someone who's looking for them, you've not been able to make contact with them? Relatives who know overstairs there have reported that, you know, the ones that do that they do know of are fine. And they, we know that there are overstayers who are probably missing or no one can track. You know, this is a really sensitive matter. They're not going to be waving their hands around, here I am, here I am, because the immigration department will be onto them and then boot them back home. They're smart. They're survivors and they're savvy. That's why they're still here. That is the Deputy Chair of the Aotearoa Tongan Response Group, Pakilao Manese Lua. It is nearly 20 to 6, we'll call it that, we'll just round it up, you know, so you're more efficient with your time. It's Nathan Arada here, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, 400 kilometres of road were damaged on the east coast alone during Cycling, uh, cycling Gabrielle. The government has announced $250 million to repair state and local highways, $50 million package for flood impact to businesses. National's Nicola Willis gives us her take, and we are back in Tolaga Bay, where now out-of-work forestry workers ponder their future.
The professionals of Morning Report are here after six. It's Corin Dan who's with me. Kia ora, Corin. How are you? Atamaria, very well yourself? Pretty good. Hmm. Pretty good. Very lucky. I'm feeling very lucky now whenever I'm hearing stories of Northland or Tarafati or yep. anywhere, actually. I just feel very, very fortunate. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well, we've got plenty on that today. We'll hear from the Prime Minister, uh, Chris Hipkins, uh, on this package of financial aid that is uh, going to the flood hit regions uh rolling mall is how they describe it and there's mm. uh, i think it was a john key term that originally someone way back uh, might have been the christchurch earthquake of rolling out uh packages so this will be the first of a few but we do need some more details about how it's going to work yeah. uh will there be wage subsidies within that 50 million will there have to be more on that front a lot of issues to talk about there as well as issues around managed retreat and where roads can be rebuilt or whether they can be rebuilt so quite a bit to cover with the prime minister this morning uh we'll also hear from Neil uh, for the latest on the actual uh, emergency, if you like, which has been extended, of course, the National State of Emergency. Uh, Jan Tanetti, the Education Minister, is in to talk about truancy and what the government's doing there. Some new initiatives to try and tackle that. We'll get lots of reaction too from farmers, growers to the government's uh, flood relief uh, packages. And Neil Finn is on oh, the show. What's he doing? Is well, he he's, say, is he's he part say? of a uh, really cool effort to raise some funds for the Cyclone. Uh, our big names, we've got Neil Finn, Lord, LAB. It'll be a great concert. That'll be a great lineup. Uh, playing in Christchurch, I think, a charity concert. Neil Finn's going to talk about that. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so people are really rally- rallying, and nice that South Island's uh, climbing on board to yeah. help out. Well, I mean, you know, obviously tomorrow a very big uh, anniversary for the people of Christchurch, and they can understand what it's like when you when you get a, a disaster that hits you. And as, as I've been saying a lot, current, it's it's not the right now; it's the in a few months when yeah. you feel like everyone's moved on and forgotten you. Yes, exactly, and uh, that's and it took a long a long process, a long long process, and tra- mm. a lot of trauma from that quake, no doubt about it. Yeah, oh, well, great. There's some people climbing on board. Thank you uh, very much, Corin Dan. Well, look, yeah, many of Tairawhiti's forestry workers are now in a state of limbo after Cyclone Gabrielle wiped out the roads to their plantations. So as the money runs out, they're hoping to find out today whether they can be redeployed to join the cleanup. And as Matthew Tunison reports, it comes as Tolaga Bay locals ponder who should foot the bill for cleaning up the slash North of Gisborne, in the seaside town of Tolaga Bay, things seem fairly normal at first glance. School is back after a week off, the shops are open, power's back on, and it's fairly easy to pick up a Wi-Fi signal now. The town's many forestry workers, though, aren't able to head to the pine plantations, so are out of work. Outside the Tolaga Bay Inn, half a dozen forestry workers are parked up, waiting for instructions from regional civil defence so they can be paid to join the clean-up. Bruce Smythe is too, as he catches up with Farno across the road. I just saw the roads, it just slipped away. Yeah, yeah it's no way of getting me. Up to all the forestry blocks is pretty no much. Access. Yeah, a lot of my friends have um, their own logging companies, yeah, they can't get to work either. Yeah, a lot of people can't get to their jobs. Um, uh, my boss, he's a, we got three logging crews, and be lucky if one of them can get to work. So what are you going to do? I don't know. Send the go. That, they got a meeting here in Tolaga today. I'm going to go down there try and get some clean up work. And there will certainly be no shortage of cleaning work, and it'll all involve silt, ton upon ton of sticky, oozing, stinking silt. When I arrive on Kawaya Road, Bill Bartley is helping his neighbours Aroha and Abel, whose holiday home is completely surrounded by this stuff, 
it's above gumboot height and places. Yeah, so you silters basically all your all your runoff from across the farms and the rivers, and it just yeah. picks up all of the um, all of the mud and mixed in with that. Of you, you've got your your herbicides and your pesticides and and everything else and, and whatever else is on the ground. So from possibly sewage. Oh, definitely places. from some sewage um, and everything that animals do, yeah. as animals do. Um, it's very fine. Um, yeah, it actually texture. dries into a clay, like right. a hard, crusty clay, like um, almost like you'd see in the desert when it all dries out. Yes. You know, that's the sort of... With the cracks. Yeah. Bill's place was pretty much totaled by Gabrielle, and he'll have to rebuild it. We're looking at 100% write-off, but just in case it's not, I'm pulling up all the linings and everything, uh, in case they want to do a repair instead. Yeah. I've probably got another at least two days pulling up floor linings in my place, mm. and uh, we've got to take some outside cladding to get to insulation. And these guys have probably got probably a day and a half, eh? Yeah. Just full going. Aroha says it's neighbours like Bill who will get them through this. Oh, Bill's the most amazing neighbour. He's yeah. just, yeah, we're really grateful for him and Punny. And um, he came over and he managed to save half of our stuff but didn't get to save his stuff because we've got lofts. So, yeah, all the soft stuff went up the top and, yeah, he always, he's always saving us. <laughs> As of yesterday, it was only possible to get as far north of Tolaga Bay as the turn-off to Anaura Bay before the road was impassable. Teams of diggers were loading bucket after bucket of the sludgy silt into the back of trucks. The boss was too busy to talk, but a driver tells me it's bad up ahead. It's cr- down at the Pukitiwai Marae, generations of whānau came together with mops and buckets to clean the silt and water from inside. Victor Walker is a trustee there. So the first thing that hits you is the smell of the silt and it's putrid, it's rancid. Yeah. We've just taken out about 30 tables that were, um, uh, that were just sitting in silt and water. Yeah. So everything there below is, will be rubbish. Um, we've just taken out a whole lot of tables, as I said. Um, it went through the Whare about a foot right through, so yeah. our carpet is totally saturated um, with water as well. So uh, early days, um, but we'll be we'll be ripping that as well. The, the whānau is doing a fantastic job. Yeah, they are under really trying conditions because you've seen. This is the first time we've been able to get together and put our plan together. Yeah. Um, we're coming in with water blasters later on this afternoon to just at least get the silt off so we can start moving. As well as the silt, the landscape is littered with forestry slash leftover giant logs and branches from felled forests that's been swept down by the floodwaters. Some locals are angry with the forestry sector, which they blame for making things far worse. But Victor Walker says it's more complicated than that. In Bola, there was no forestry. And Hukuwai still got the 12.8 metres. In my view, there's a number of things that are happening that are, that are adding to the, um, the issue or the problem. Certainly forestry is one of those. But there's also the fact that for generations now, our cropping practices haven't been great either. So here's the equation. Every time we, we crop and we're waiting for planting and we do disc up the land and everything and it rains, where's that topsoil going to? The topsoil is filling up our waterways. So actually, yes, we are saying 
that there is the rivers are getting higher, but actually the bed of, of the waterways are actually getting raised because of the soil that is getting washed in there. And so you get the slash coming along, it just exacerbates an already bad situation. So it's a 360 approach. It's a 360 approach. Resilient. Yeah. So it's, it is farming, it's forestry, um, and it's the practices around yeah. that. People affected by the cyclone in Tairawhiti and elsewhere are eligible for support from the Ministry of Social Development, including costs for those who've had to leave their homes, emergency food, power bills, repairs and loss of income. A payment is also available for those who've had evacuees staying with them. The government has announced the first in the rolling mall of financial assistances to those impacted by Cyclone Gabrielle. It includes $250 million to repair local and state highways and a $50 million lifeline to keep businesses afloat. Uh, Details will be revealed in the coming days. National's Deputy Leader and Finance Spokesperson Nicola Willis has visited Gisborne, Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay uh, to see the destruction. I asked her what she made of yesterday's announcement. Well, look, of course, continuing the state of emergency is sensible. There are still people uh, who haven't been uh, officially connected and contacted. There are still people without power. Uh, There are still people who are worried for their loved ones. Uh, All of those issues are very pressing, and uh, the state of emergency is justified. Look, my concern, Nathan, is that for some of the people I spoke to over the past few days, the announcement of business support was very generic and what didn't provide the detail that will give people certainty that actually they're going to have a job in the next week. You know, I think of the forestry workers I met who were on their hands and knees in the mm. mud are digging away silt from the um, kiwi fruit vines. Well, they've been let go from their forestry contractor because the roads are broken and the harvest can't get out. What they want to know is, will there be a job for me? And when I spoke to the farmer, the farmer's saying, well, will the government support me to create a job for these people? And there's a real sense of uncertainty. So I really would have liked to have seen some more detail uh, for people on the ground. Yeah, I know that there's a, they're talking about it being a rolling mall of relief packages that go. Can we get to those forestry? You know, you, you've mentioned the slash there a couple of times. As you know, this is a province very, very close to my heart. Uh, uh, that's right there as well. Every single picture I've seen has lost in it and it's that slash that's come down and it's built up walls and carried a lot of stuff with it I know of people who were swept away in floods who were you know injured by having parts of their legs and arm punctured by pieces of wood that was in there as well the the forestry um, companies here surely they have to help with this cleanup don't they don't they have to acknowledge that they're a part of this that would be the right thing to do It is impossible to ignore the compounding effect forestry slash has had on the flooding. Uh, I saw bridges with mountains of slash, and you can't tell me the weight of that hasn't contributed to the bridge being broken. I saw orchards with huge trunks, metres long, washed into the vines that have done huge damage. I, I spoke to farmers who might be able to harvest their maize once it's dried out, but can't because their machinery will just be caught in the forestry wood. So I think there are some big questions here. Are our rules tough enough? 
Are we enforcing them properly? And is the enforcement actually requiring those companies to clean up their own waste? Mm. I'm pretty sure the answer to all those questions is no, and we're going to have to do better. I was, I was thinking that, right? Because I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I know nothing about. I don't. I'm very skimming over the law here. But usually in these situations, when you get these big companies making a lot of money, they point and they go, yeah, but look, there's the regulation and we did exactly to the bottom, you know, that we could have regulation so tough. We're not paying for that as well. Is our our parliament in general, are we robust enough to be able to to be able to get get over that and say, no, but you've got you've got a moral I don't know what the word is, to act here? <laughs> well anyone who's operating a business using the land uh, has to have a thought to the effect on their community. Yeah. Uh, and in this instance, I don't think it's tolerable for these communities to coexist with an industry that can have that level of devastation as a consequence of not cleaning up after itself. So I think we all want to see the forestry sector continue in terms of the employment that it provides and the income it provides to these regions. Yeah. But we need to see it going forward in a way that means we don't see this level of waste and destruction in the future. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about immigration. I know that you've you've been very keen to have immigration opened up to help with other parts of New Zealand. Uh, Prime Minister Hipkins is considering a special rebuild visa to try and get the labour in for the rebuild. I mean, how important do you see immigration to our recovery there? Look, I think that's the right thing to do, and we're supportive of that suggestion by the government because we need to get these bridges rebuilt quickly. We need to get these roads rebuilt quickly. That's going to mean skilled people across all levels of the construction pipeline and we don't have them in New Zealand right now. We know that because we've already been missing the construction people for the projects we had pre-cyclone. So we're going to have to be pragmatic about it. We're going to have to get people into the country fast, cut through the red tape, because at the moment a visa can take five or six months to process. We're going to need them here fast, uh, and we're going to have to move on it. Yeah. The roading that you would have seen around Tairawhiti, around Poverty Bay, around Hawke's Bay, it's not just there, it's Coromandel as well. There's parts of West Auckland that are still like that, and poor old Northland as well. Have you done the numbers on what kind of money might be needed to, to fix our roads? I haven't independently done the numbers, but I've heard both the Minister of Finance and a range of economists economists suggest that it will be in the multi-billions, and that does check out for me. And that's both the immediate repair work, but in some cases, replacing these roads in ways that means they're more robust in the future, so that we don't have communities in the Coromandel, for example, cut off every time there's a big rain event. That's not acceptable. Those communities need to be able to get out and about and have freight come into their places. So we need to build these roads in ways that they can withstand the kind of extreme weather that we were expecting more of in the future. Nicola, I've seen you know great stories, and it is I think New Zealand's at its best when, when we come together to help each other. And I've seen people taking in strangers that they don't know to their house to say, "You need somewhere. I recognise this is an emergency. Come to me." Like you said, the woman I helping out. There are people opening their their doors. These are just normal, ordinary Kiwis who the ones we've spoken about the last couple of years are living with high costs. And that I've seen companies that have posted record profits in the last year. Don't you think it is time for them to actually? Support support the communities that that they are built off? Look, I'd encourage everyone to think of themselves as having a role to play in supporting our communities through that. And you're right, that's individuals, but it is also businesses. I know, for example, that the foodstuffs chain have been 
doing a lot of work to try and get not only their stores up and running, but to get emergency supplies out to those groups that need food. And I think that sort of thing is important Mm. in a time of emergency. And I just support what you're saying, which is we have seen incredible acts of bravery, of selflessness, of generosity from the community. And I think it's in seeing those acts that we actually get hope, which is that we are here for each other. And even in the worst of times, you do see the best in many people. That is Nicola Willis. Uh, finally this morning, uh, someone here saying, what I noticed was no one wearing masks uh, with the clean-up. Yeah, although it might be, perhaps, I'm just running here if it might be on camera, because it's so dusty. Surely you'd, you'd want a bandana or something, but I understand what you mean there as well, and I think there's a bit of COVID popping around too. Uh, I find Nicola and the National Party astonishing. Historically, they've played a part in negating forestry responsibility and looking after the environment, says Pip. Uh, there is more feedback. Thank you very much for that. I've run out of time. Morning Reporters next with Guy and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Have a wonderful day. We're back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor. I had four more seconds. I could have spoken. Come on.